Welcome to the Crown Council Mentor of the Month. This is Steve Anderson. Our mentor this month is a great friend and not a stranger to the Crown Council. We first met Dr. Brene Brown in 2013 at the Crown Council annual event in Las Vegas. Since then, she has risen on the world stage as a world-renowned author, a New York Times bestseller, and in the top five most viewed TED Talks in the world with over 25 million views. Brene Brown is a research professor at the University of Houston Graduate School of Social Work, and she spent the last 13 years studying vulnerability, courage, worthiness, and shame. She is the author of three number one New York Times bestsellers entitled Rising Strong, Daring Greatly, and The Gifts of Imperfection. She's also the founder and CEO of The Daring Way and Courage Works, an online learning community that offers e-courses, workshops, and interviews for individuals and organizations ready for braver living, loving, and leading. With that, we welcome Brene Brown back to the Crown Council as our mentor of the month this month. Brene, welcome back. Thank you. I'm so excited to be with you again. So great to be with you. I'm very excited to talk to you about your latest work entitled Rising Strong, which has a formula for coming back from a fall, as you call it, or a failure or a setback. And I think the whole objective here is to come back stronger than, than you went in. So maybe you could kind of bring us up to date of what last time that we heard from you, uh, you talked to us about Daring Greatly and gave us the whole context there. Kind of give us a little update on your journey over the last uh, couple of years and context for Rising Strong. Sure. You know, Daring Greatly for me was all about what does it take to show up and be seen in our lives, Um, to really put ourselves out there to be all in, um, and what kind of vulnerability does that require? And I think like most people, this is what I talked about when I was with y'all, um, for, like most people, I was raised to believe that vulnerability is weakness, and we kind of armor up every day and move through the world in a very self-protective way. Um, and, you know, what the research really taught me is that vulnerability is not weakness. It's not something to cover up or armor up. It's actually our most accurate measure of courage. Are you willing to show up in hard situations, in hard conversations, um, and be honest and be true when you can't control the outcome? You can't control what people are going to think of you. You can't control how people are going to respond. You can't control whether you're going to succeed or not. And so coming out of Daring Greatly for me, and I think for a lot of the folks who were on this journey with me, readers and people in the courses, um, the three big learnings for me were, one, I want to be brave with my life. Um, And that means really choosing courage over comfort. Um, There is really nothing comfortable about being brave, um, which is why it's so rare. Um, The second thing I learned was that you know, when I think about the Theodore Roosevelt quote, and I know it was a quote when I shared it with your, your community, it was a quote that really resonated. Um, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done it better. The credit belongs to the person who's actually in the arena. 
whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again and again, and who in the end, while he may know the triumph of high achievement, at least when he fails, he does so daring greatly. And to me, that quote was everything I had learned about vulnerability. You know, in 150,000 pieces of data, I cannot find a single example of courage that is not absolutely underpinned by the willingness to be vulnerable. And then the third thing I learned, which I think, you know, has really, to be honest, when I was doing this tour for Rising Strong, a lot of people said, you know, you've had a lot of success in the last couple of years. You know, what do you attribute it to? And um, in addition from, you know, massive support from my family and my friends and my team, this third learning really changed my, the trajectory of my life and my career, which is this. If you're not in the arena getting your ass kicked on occasion, I am not interested in or open to your feedback because there are a million cheap seats in the world today um, filled with people who will never have to put themselves out there or will choose to never put themselves out there who are very quick to kind of hurl mean-spirited, name-calling, you know, judgment and criticism but don't know what it's like trying to show up and do contribute every day in the best way you know how. And so for me, it's not about not being open to feedback. It's about being very selective about whose feedback I take, which is why I think Crown Council and the community that you've built is so important because, you know, if, if dentists, if team members don't have each other to give open and honest feedback to um, in, in a meaningful, constructive way, then what you're left with with the people whose feedback is not really feedback, it's fear, closed as feedback. Um, and so to me, those are the three learnings. So coming out of research, one of the things that happened for us is we got literally thousands and thousands of emails and social media tweets and you know Instagram comments and Facebook comments that said, I'm trying to be brave with my life. I'm getting my butt kicked. I'm on the ground, face down in the arena. How do you get back up? And so having been face down in the arena several times in major ways in the last couple of years, I was really interested in, in learning that. And so I went into the research asking this new question. Men and women who fall in the service of trying to be brave with their lives, what does it take for those men and women? What do they do to get back up on their feet? and become even more courageous and more tenacious based on that fall. And when I say a fall, I mean making a mistake at work, a conflict with a team member, um, saying I love you first and having that person look back at you and say, uh, you're awesome, but I think we should date other people. Um, you know, conflicts with family, conflicts with patients, with, with colleagues, small moments, big moments, bad news from the doctor, like, Falls can run the gambit of a crappy comment from someone we care about, a family member, to a divorce, a separation, an affair. You know, they run, they, they run the whole spectrum. But the question is, how do we get back up? So that's the new research. So you've, I don't know if you'd say you've developed a formula, but you have a formula that you talk hmm. about in terms of the process that someone can go through to, to rise stronger. So walk us through 
kind of those steps. I believe there's, there's three primary steps that you talk about that you have to go through to rise stronger. Tell us about that. Can I tell a funny story as a way, as a way of example to talk about the Rising Strong process? Ab- absolutely. Okay, so, okay, this is nervous laughter because I'm getting ready to reveal my um, craziness, I guess. Um, so six or seven months ago, um, in kind of the first quarter of 2015, I had this idea that in the fall of 2015, I was going to launch a new book and do a full book tour in several countries, you know, 40 cities. I was going to start a new ed tech company, and I was going to train the 1,500 therapists and coaches who are certified in my work on all of the Rising Strong process, and I would do that all in like a two-month period. And I don't know, do you ever do that thing where <laughs> it sounds really good because it's six months away? Yeah. And I literally, I'm really bad at this. In fact, my team, my, le- my leadership team had an intervention with me last year. They were like, we love you. We think you're really, you know, smart. But the piece of your brain that controls expectations and time is missing. Um, and it was really hard to hear, but I really listened and I said, okay, so I'm going to have to surround myself with people. So I had this plan. So over the summer, I'm getting ready for the book tour, which is tons of work because you're doing tons of media in advance. I am creating a new curriculum for Rising Strong. I'm training folks and I'm getting ready to launch a new company with very large, you know, strategic media partners. And one day I'm in the dining room, and the dining room is my favorite room in my house because no one really uses the formal dining room. We always just sit at the breakfast room table, and so it's always clean, but now, and it's still dirty. Actually, I've got, like, crap everywhere, yep. stuff pinned to the walls because, we're, you know, we're, we're in startup mode. Yep. And Steve comes home one day, and I hear him come in the back door, and he walks through the kitchen, and I hear him set his stuff down on the table, and he opens the refrigerator door, and all I hear him say is, we don't even have any damn lunch meat in this house. And, oh, my God, just my blood ran cold. I, rem- I remember I was, like, shaking. I stood up. I was like, uh-uh, no, uh-uh. So I walked in the kitchen because I want everyone listening right now to just pause for a moment and think about how they would receive that comment. I mean, anyone that's in a partnership at all knows exactly what's getting ready to happen. So I marched to the kitchen, and I'm like, I'm sorry, are we out of lunch meat? And he looks at me kind of baffled, and I said, hey, listen, you know that big old pickup truck you drive? He's like, yeah. And I said, I bet if you point that truck west on the street, it'll take you right to the grocery store. (laughs) And I bet if you go in the grocery store... And you give the grocery store people your credit card, they'll give you a bag of ham. That's how it works. And he's like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, what's wrong with me? Look, I know the wheels are falling off. I know everything sucks right now. I got it. I don't need you announcing to the house that you know everything sucks. I got it. I'm living this sucky life right now. I know I'm a half-ass mom, half-ass wife. I know. I get it. Everything's falling apart, and you're pissed off because dinner's on the table, and it's 6 o'clock. And he takes a deep breath, and he looks at me, and he said, what is 365 times 25? 
I swear to God, my first response is, now he's mass shaming me. I'm like, what? <laughs> and he's like, what's 365 times I'm like, I don't know, Steve. What is it? What is it, Doctor? You know, what is it, Doctor Alley? Um, and he said, I don't know either. But that's the number of days we've been married. And in the number of days, never in my life once have I walked in and seen dinner on the table. I was like, what? And he goes, never once, once has dinner ever been on the table. Like, first of all, if dinner was on the table when I walked home, I would think either you were getting ready to divorce me and you were going to tell me over dinner, or someone was sick in our family. Secondly, I do all the grocery shopping in the family. Third, we cook dinner together every night. So what is going on? And I was like totally deflated. I was like, oh, damn, he's poked these holes in my argument. And I said, and here's what I said. And this is, this sentence, I have to tell you, has changed my life has changed my marriage, has changed the way I parent, has changed the way I lead my team, um, has changed everything. And it's a sentence that floated around in my data for probably 10 years. But when I started doing the Rising Strong research, it was front and center. And I'm not exaggerating when I say every man and woman who demonstrated high skills, high resilience skills, high skills in getting back up, used some version of this sentence in my interviews with them. And so I pulled out the sentence and looked at Steve and said, the story I'm making up right now, which is the sentence, the story I'm making up right now is that everything is falling apart and I am disappointing everyone in my life. I'm disappointing my team. I'm disappointing our strategic partners. I'm disappointing the kids. I'm disappointing you. I'm disappointing myself. And you wanted to make sure that I know, that you know, how bad things suck right now. That's the story I'm making up. And he said, well, I know it was hard for you to say that, and I really appreciate you telling me that, but that story is just wrong. And so I want to stop here for a minute and say this. This is what we've learned from the research. This is what I've seen in my interviews, and this is what we've learned from the neurobiology research. When something difficult happens, when our partner makes a crappy comment, when, you know, when a patient says something critical or reminds us about how much they hate being with the dentist, when, I mean, when something hard happens, our brain scrambles to make sense of what's happening because our brain is only wired for one thing and that is survival. And when something difficult happens, our brain is wired to make sense of it. And here's what we have to understand. And this is so important, especially in healthcare. Emotion, it's the first crack at understanding what's happening. Not logic, not reasoning, not the prefrontal cortex. Emotion gets the first crack at understanding what's happening. Because we would like to believe that we are, we would like to believe that we are thinking beings who on occasion have a feeling. If we don't like it, we flick it away and we go back to thinking. But the truth is we are emotional beings who on occasion think. And when something difficult happens, what the brain wants, the brain needs to understand what's happening to know how to protect you. 
And the brain literally recognizes the pattern of a narrative. It recognizes story, beginning, middle, and end. And if we can give the brain a story very quickly to help it make sense of what we're feeling and what's happening, the brain actually chemically rewards us. And so, you know, when something difficult happens or you're in a conflict and you get that feeling like, oh, I know what this is about. You know that feeling? Yep, absolutely. So that's actually a chemical reaction. Our brain is rewarding us for giving it a story to make sense. The problem is, and this is the huge issue, especially for those, I know that y'all talk about the addiction to pleasing um, yep. at Crown Council. Yep. Um, well, that must mean I'm a dentist somewhere in a past life because <laughs> I totally, yeah, because I totally, or I'm a team member. I'm, in, I'm somewhere in your council because I have that too. And unfortunately, probably five of the seven people on my leadership team also share that trait. So if we do, if we, if really, and I'm going to use the word suffer, if we really suffer from that addiction of kind of being defined by our ability to please people and meet their expectations, then any time we don't do that, that's a threat. And our brain scrambles to make up a story. Um, and so for us, and here's how the brain works. The brain hates ambiguity. It hates uncertainty. It wants yeah. a story that has good guys, bad guys, dangerous people, safe people, you know, very binary thinking, which is just not true in the emotional world. Right. And the brain can even, for those of us who, you know, as a social scientist or, you know, in a healthcare setting, for those of us who, you know, are in those settings, even just vulnerability and ambiguity can feel threatening. So what men and women have in common who are able to rise strong is this process of first they recognize that they're in emotion. I call it the reckon, the rumble, and the revolution. The first thing is they recognize that they're feeling something. Um, because, you know, the truth is a lot of us don't, don't even know when emotion has grabbed us and has sent us into behaviors that are out of line with our values and our ethics. We're not even aware that we're in emotion. Most of us, rather than recognizing emotion, offload emotion. We get, you know, we get pissed, we yell, we take it out on people, we try to people please even harder. But the first step is just recognizing that we're in emotion and getting curious about what's happening. And so, so it's just you and I on the phone. So I'm going to, can I ask you to be my, my guinea pig? Sure, sure, you bet. Okay. So something difficult happens. I look at you and I'm like, wow, that was a really stupid thing to say. How would you know physically that you've been emotionally grabbed by something? How would you know that emotion has filled up in you? What are some of the symptoms for you personally? Um, I would, for me, I feel it in my gut. So it's like somebody sucker punched me in the gut. That's where I feel it first. Okay. So that is a really common response for me. I get tunnel vision, my mouth gets dry and time slows down. Yep. So what I want everyone listening to do right now, is it okay if we just talk to them like we're there with us? Absolutely. You bet they are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what I want everyone to do listening right now is think about 
what is your physiological response to emotion? What do you do? Some people, if their heart races, their fingers tingle, they get flush. We have to, you know, the body registers emotion way before the mind does. And, you know, again, emotion gets first crack at this thing. And it's not like, it's not like emotion is driving and behavior and rational thought is in the front seat telling it where to go. You know, emotion is driving when something difficult happens and behavior and thought, cognition, are in the trunk. Um, they're just following. And so what we need to do is say, okay, Jesus, um, something, has, something has grabbed me. Like, I'm, I'm triggered here. I'm, I'm snared. I'm hooked. Then we have to get curious about it. What is going on? And that's the only step. But we don't do that. So imagine when Steve came home, said the comment about the lunch meat, and instead of racing into the kitchen to put him down and say, get in your truck and drive and get your own damn ham, I was like, okay, my hands are shaking. I, my mouth is dry. My teeth are clenched. What is going on for me right now? I need to get, like, I need to get curious. And here's the thing. We were all born curious. But curiosity gets drilled out of most of us by early elementary school. Yeah, uh, true. We're not, yeah, because what, I mean, you know, like if you're listening right now, and there's, there's 10,000 of you listening right now, raise your hand if you were raised in a family where you were encouraged to get emotion, curious about your emotions and explore and talk about them. <laughs> that should be five out of 10,000. If you're lucky. Right. I mean, I know I do this with large groups of people all the time. Most of us were raised, if we've got a feeling, and it's a hard feeling, push it down, suck it up, soldier on, and get it done. But the problem is that the behavior that that drives is outside of our integrity. Because we're not making the choices, our emotions, and these crazy stories we're making up. So for me... I was interested in, okay, so people who don't just respond to emotion without thinking about it and recognizing it and getting curious about it, what do they do? What strategies do people use to recognize they're in emotion? And I'm going to be totally honest with you. This is my least favorite finding of my career thus far. And that was those people practice mindfulness and breathing. And when I hear those words, I just kind of, I just hear like the, the peanut parent, like wah, 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 wah. Like, what, <laughs> right. what does that mean? Like mindfulness. Like, and so I dug into the research thinking there's got to be a better word or there's got to be a better way for me under, to understand this. Because when I think of mindfulness, here's what I think of. I think of, you know, I'm walking on the beach and it's beautiful and there's a starfish and the cloud is white and the sky is blue and oh my god I've got shit to do I cannot be doing you know like I can't I cannot be sucked into I can't be sucked into the meta theory of what's going on all day because I'm a very goal driven outcome driven let's get stuff done person so when I went into the research what I found was a lot of researchers rather than using the term mindfulness, use a term that I use all the time with Steve, with my kids, and with my team, and that is pay attention. We need to pay attention. So we need to be, learn how to recognize our, our physiology of emotion and then pay attention to it 
and take some deep breaths. And let me tell you, breathing is another one of those things. I'm a breath holder. But one of the things I learned, and this is from not just yoga, you know, yoga and mindfulness practitioners, but I do a lot of work with special ops military. Um, breath is hugely important. So I'm in the dining room. Steve makes the comment instead of racing in and berating him, which here's a guy I love and respect who didn't deserve this. Um, I stood up. I got paid attention to what I was feeling, and I took some deep breaths and thought, what is going on right now? Because the thing that breath does is it physiologically grounds us and brings some clarity in. And the method that, you know, it's so funny because I, I did meet with, I did a focus group of mindfulness practitioners and yoga instructors about breathing, and they were like, you need to box breathe. And so they kind of moved their finger in the shape of a square in front of them, and they said, you know, in for four, then across, you hold for four, out for four, and, and hold for four. And I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, this is so flaky. I can't do this. But in like less than a month, I'm at West Point talking to people, um, military folks, about strategies to recognize emotion. Because here's what, here's what military folks will tell you. Active duty, vet, special ops, people in very difficult, you know, people in very tense, difficult situations, much like the situations that your folks are in often. Um, you know, doing procedures, doing work with very high emotion, high anxiety, high pressure, fear is running all over the room. Um, they said the most dangerous people to be on the ground with are people who don't recognize their own emotion. And then when I said, how do you recognize your own emotion in these really highly charged situations? And you know what they said? It's all about the breath, ma'am. And they said, really? we tactically, yeah, we do tactical yeah. breathing. And I was like, tactical breathing sounds better. What's that? It was the exact same format. Interesting. In for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. And so one of the things, you know, one of the invitations that I would offer, you know, to your folks is to everyone listening is if you hear the words mindfulness and breath and you kind of roll your eyes, you're not alone. Um, I'm with you. But there's some really important science behind it about how before we respond to really reckon with emotion, understand, hey, I'm in this and I need to get curious about what's going on before, you know, my motto is get curious, not furious. (laughs) Really. Right. Because... I mean, I don't know about you. I mean, I'm curious what you think about this in your own life, but I find it easier to be pissed off than it is to be hurt. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know what's, yeah. what's interesting about this, Renee, is, is in the whole dynamic of what happens in a dental practice, one of the things that we talk about a lot is that patients, people, make decisions emotionally, and then they justify the emotional decision with logic. And, and so one of the standing jokes in dentistry is the PETA patient, P-I-T-A, pain in the, you finished Pain in the ass, yeah, of course. Right. And, and, and because those are the patients that are reacting out of emotion without recognizing what's really going on. And dentistry is fraught with those kind of situations every day. So here's what I would, this. yeah, so here's what I would offer, you know, 
dentists, team members, social science researcher, we need to heal thyself first. Because it's not just patients who respond emotionally and back it up with logic. It's all of us because we're not talking about we're not talking about a lack of maturity or, you know, we're talking about neurobiology. And so for us, and so let me tell you that the addiction to please, which is probably going to be the hill, the hill that I will climb my whole life. That's what, that's what, you know, that's what I've been tasked with for my life to get over that. I'm getting better and better progress, not perfection, but that is, a form of that is a form of um, that is a form of emotional response. You know, we talk about we talk about the patients. We talk about the patients having this emotional response and backing up with logic, but the need to please is also an emotional response. Yeah, it's a threat to our self worth that we back up with logic. Well, yeah, I can't, like in for my life, I can't, I can't, you know, disappoint these other faculty members or my dean or, or I can't disappoint all these people in my community um, who are, you know, basically our consumers because then they'll think less of me or they'll question my ability or my, they'll question my intellect or they'll question my integrity, worst of all. And so I'm going to, I'm going to please them to protect what they think about my integrity and my ethics and my ability. And think about that sentence. I'm going to please them to protect what they think about my integrity. I don't know if a sentence can be an oxymoron, but that is. Because the way that we protect our integrity is by doing what's right over what's easy, what's courageous, over what's comfortable, and practice our values, not just profess them. And that means we're going dis- to we're we're have people in front of us who are disappointed, pissed, angry, confused. Um, but in the end, one of the stories that we have to reality check that we mess up, that we make up, is that in order to be perceived as good, at, as good at what we do, we have to please people. But that's not true. And let me tell you, as someone who's you know, married to a physician, um, has a daughter who is like in a junior in high school visiting college who is thinking about actually going into dentistry, um, what we really want in front of us is no matter what happens, you care about me enough to tell me the truth and be honest and forthright, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it makes me mad, and even if it's not what I want to hear. I could always count on you for that. And so, you know, the second part of this process is that, you know, the first is the reckoning, recognize emotion, get curious about it. Then we got to rumble with the stories that we're making up. And so the question becomes, what story are we making up that's driving this behavior? So for me, I stood in front of Steve and said, I'm, you know, I'm making up that you want me to know that you know that I'm letting everyone down and I'm disappointing everyone. And so his response to me was this. 
I know that that's the story you make up. It's your go-to story for sure. But let me tell you what I see. I see you drowning. And when you're kind of in struggle, you will always ask for help. But when you're drowning, you're so overwhelmed you don't ask for help. And my job as your husband is to find you when you're drowning and pull you to the surface. And your job is to find me when I'm drowning and pull me to the surface. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to sit together tonight. We're going to not cook tonight because there is no lunch meat. We're just going to get Chick-fil-A for the fifth night in a row. Um, and, you know, we'll put a baby green salad with it to make us feel better about not poisoning our kids too much. And, and then we're going to put them down early. And then we're going to sit down and go through every single thing on your to-do list and figure out what you can delegate, what I can help with, what you can hand off to team members until you can catch your breath. And that was an amazing experience for me um, because one of the things that I don't think, especially those of us who are really the disease to please, um, when you own your story, even if it's a story of failure, a story of letting someone down, a story of mistakes, a story of heartbreak, of disappointment, when you own your story, you get to write the ending. When you deny a story, when you pretend like it didn't happen, when you push it down, when you don't talk about it, that story owns you. Okay. And so what we need to do is we need to rumble with the story. So two of the words that I love from this research is confabulation and conspiracy. So a conspiracy, the definition of a conspiracy, is a story with limited data points that we fill in with belief, fear, and values. So basically, when we have limited data points, I mean, anyone listening out here, how many of you have ever led a team through change? Everybody. How many of you? Yeah, everybody has. And how hard is that? It's hard. Most times. Because, right, people go crazy. And why? Because when they have limited, in the absence, I mean, you can just tattoo this on your arm, in the absence of data, we will always make up stories. It's how we're wired. We are storytelling animals. We are meaning-making people. It's, it's what separates us from other mammals. We are meaning-making people. We need to understand meaning. We need to have stories. Our brain wants the story. And so a conspiracy is basically a story where you have two or three points and you fill in the rest with fear. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to minimize ambiguity and uncertainty. Yeah, I only know these three things, but I'm going to make up the rest to make it a complete story without any holes because I need to know because I'm scared. A confabulation, and this is something we studied, interestingly, when we studied traumatic brain injury and dementia um, in graduate school. A confabulation is a lie told honestly. So let's say instead of staying downstairs with me and talking this through, when I was kind of crappy to Steve, he went upstairs and he, you know, and he was like, you know, you've, I don't know what's wrong with you, but you're, you're just being kind of a jerk and I'm going upstairs. And I picked up the phone and called my sister and I was like, Ashley, you're not going to believe what's going on over here. Steve just shamed me for not having dinner on the table. Like, what is this, like 1950? Is that a lie? No, because I believe it. It's a lie told honestly. It doesn't, the, the damage that it does is not any less than a lie. But one of the things we have to do is we have to check the conspiracies and confabulations in our stories that we're making up. I call these stories the SFD, which stands for the shitty first draft. 
<laughs> stormy okay. first, yeah, I say stormy first draft or storm, you know, with kids and church groups, but it's really the shitty first draft. And that quote comes from Anne Lamont, who's a writer that says, all writers, no matter how talented, start with a blank page and a shitty first draft. And those first stories that we make up that, oh man, if, you know, if, if, if I sit down and tell James, Jane Smith the truth about what's going on in her mouth and her health, she's going to blame me or she's going to think I did something wrong or she's going to, you know, just, you know, like one of the things I hear from Steve all the time. Can I use an example for my husband? Cause it's probably close. Steve and I always talk about the stories he makes up about the fact like patients will call, he's a pediatrician all the time and say, I need antibiotics. And he's like, what's going on? And he's like, well, first of all, I need to see your child. And secondly, I don't think it sounds like, well, I'm going on vacation. I want antibiotics right now. And then so he has to wrestle with the story he makes up that like, you know, are they going to leave the practice? Do they not think I know what I'm doing? Versus, look, the over-prescribing of antibiotics is a big deal. And I'm not going to give them to somebody who we need to ride this out. This is what we know is happening, you know. And so what is the story we make up? What is that SFD? And then, and here's what is, to me, really powerful. Um, 70% of the men and women with the highest capacity for rising after a fall wrote down their shitty first draft. They wrote it down? They wrote it down. And I'm not talking about a dissertation. I am talking about on a Post-it note. Like, I have a note a note on my iPhone that says SFD, and that's, when I, that's where I write them down. Two or three lines. This is the story. And let me tell you, you know an SFD is honest if you would be mortified that anyone ever read it. Because my SFD, you know, the, the SFD that I did not write down, like let's say I was doing this practice um, with Steve. He says the crappy comment about the lunch meat. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm like shaking. I'm so mad. Okay, what's going on? And then I ask myself, before I respond, what's the story I'm making up right now? Steve's a jerk. The last 25 years has been a lie. He's really an ass. Um, He's out to get me. He wants to hurt me. He's a totally bad guy. And I'm going to divorce him and marry someone who doesn't need lunch meat. That's how crazy these stories are. But let me tell you what happens when you just jot them down and, and we have lots of research to back this up. James Penny Baker, um, 35 years of research on trauma, conflict, and writing, will tell you that trauma survivors who write about the trauma just three or four times for no more than 10 minutes over the, uh, over the course of a month have radically different health and mental health outcomes than trauma survivors who never write about it. And I'll wow. tell you why. Just to write those things down externalizes them. If I look down on a piece of paper and I've just written, Steve's a jerk, our marriage is a lie, he's really an ass, he's out to get me, he wants to hurt me. It's really hard. I can think that and respond to it really easily, and I did. But to look at that makes me go, okay, this doesn't seem right. What is really going on? And what do I need to rumble with here? What more do I need to know about what I'm feeling, what's going on? What questions do I need to ask? What do I need to know? So imagine, I'm going to give you a, a, a work example. Because this, um, 
this just happened and it was really powerful. So let's imagine you and I are in a meeting and we walk out of the meeting and I'm like, great meeting. And you look at me and you roll your eyes and you go, Ugh, and you walk away. So there's a, there's a 100% possibility I'm going to make up a story about, I'm like, oh my God, I knew Stephen didn't like me. I knew yeah. he, he didn't think my idea was good. Oh my God, what a jerk. I'm going to go into my office and one of two things is going to happen. I'm probably going to pick up the phone and call somebody we work with and go, what's up with Stephen today? Or, you know, I'm probably going to start to create some issues. What if I went into my office and took a deep breath and was like, okay, that kind of hurt my feelings. Like, what is going on? Like, what if, then I go to your office and I knock on your door and say, hey, do you have a second? You're like, yeah, come on in, buddy. And I say to you, hey, when we were walking out of the meeting, I said, have a great day. And you kind of rolled your eyes and like groaned at me a little bit. And I'm making up that I did something in the meeting that really pissed you off or disappointed you or something. And you looked at me and said, oh, my God, no, it's just I'm always telling my kids, look, please, you know, unless it's important emergency, try not to text me till afternoon because I'm in a standing meeting on Wednesdays. And it never fails that in this meeting I get 500 texts. Where are my goggles? Where's my tenant? You know, where's this? Where's that? It makes me crazy. And I'm like, oh, my God, of course, yeah. I hate it when my phone blows up like that. Thanks. I just wanted to make sure we were, we're good. Let me ask you honestly. And you can, you can – this is not planned for those of you all listening – would you have more or less respect for me as a colleague because I went in and cleared this up for, with you? No, a lot more. Right. A lot more. And it's not like I walked in and said, hey, we walked out of the meeting. You're being a total jerk. What's going on? I said, look, the story I'm making up is, you know, you rolled your eyes in this and I make up that you're upset about something or I disappointed you or I, I didn't do a good job on our, on our proposal in front of the team. It's a very honest, disarming, and, and authentic way to say, here's what's going on in my head. I love what, it. You know, does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. And so, I think you could use it with a patient. So let me tell you, like, if, if, I, if I were at my dentist, who I love, and she said – you know, she said something hard to me about, you know, my dental care or something that's going on in my mouth. And I was like, well, you know what? I mean, like, I take really good care of my teeth. And if this is happening, it's because you didn't see the last time I was in here. It would be so amazing for her to say, I hope you're not making up that this is happening because you have poor hygiene or or even if you know, a lot of patients make up and, you know, that or tell themselves this is something that they could have prevented or this is something that they're doing wrong or this is a criticism. This is just aging. Like, like this is a little conversation I had, like, with my dentist just recently. I was like, what is happening with these crooked bottom teeth? I had really, you know, and she's like, you know, this is, this is kind of, this is what happens with this and this and that. And I was like, Am I, you, know, do, you know, and she says, no, don't go down that path. It's easy for us to make up, you know, that this is about something we've done. This isn't natural. Here are the things we can do. But this is a tool to not only use in our own lives and with our teams. Like let's say you have a team member um, that is in a conflict with another team member, something, someone that, that she maybe supervises. And, you know, we've talked three or four times 
about the need for you to stay off your cell phone. It keeps happening. I'm making up that either it's not important to you what I'm asking you to do or that there's something going on that I need to understand about why you need to be on the phone all the time. Can you help me understand what's happening? Got it. That's huge. It's huge. It's really, I mean, like just by way, do I have one time, one short story? Yeah, I do. I'm in with my team, and we're in this three-hour meeting that was scheduled to be two hours, and we're in a, you know, we're in startup crisis mode. And I look at the agenda, and I'm like, well, let's let's get the last four things, and let's just wrap up on this point. And we keep wrapping up on that point. I don't know. Five minutes later, my CFO said, you know what, I need to stop this. And I'm like, what's going on? He goes, the story I'm making up is that we're not going to tackle these last agenda items because they're not important. And if they're not important, that's okay. But this is where I'm spending 90% of my time and resources, as is my team. So if these are not priorities for the business anymore, I need to know. How brave was that? Yeah. Well, what it does, Renee, is, is it's taking ownership of what you're telling yourself. Instead of placing the blame, you're saying, okay, here's what I'm telling myself about what's going on. Is this accurate? Yes. It's huge. It's huge. And you know what I did? I looked at him and said, the reason why I don't want to do these is we're tired, we're strung out, and these are still the number one priorities in the business. And I don't want to smush them into five minutes. So A, thank you for your courage to bring it up because the alternative is he sits there pissed off the whole time and not listening and not engaged. So one, thank you for bringing them up, being honest about it. We want a meeting dedicated just to these items. And two, you know, there's this great quote that says, failure is an imperfect word because the moment we learn from it, it ceases to be a failure. And for me, the revolution in this process is when we hold up that SFD against the new brave story that we're going to tell about what happened. So the brave story for me with Steve is that I got in over my head. I made up a story that I was disappointing everyone when the truth was everyone sees how hard I'm working and I'm not asking for help because I'm so buried and that I can turn to people for help and lean on them and that I'm surrounded by really great people and that I've bitten off more than I can chew. The key learning with my team is you don't just take agenda items off. These are meaningful things to people without talking about why you're doing it. So the minute you have key learnings from this process, it is revolutionary. That is, um, you shared some amazing stuff. I could spend another three hours with you. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we're going to do that. And I'll just give everybody a preview of coming attractions. Brene has, has developed a whole online learning resource that uh, we're going to make available to the Crown Council on some specific topics, and we'll, we will get into the specifics of that and announce that. Um, but as always, Renee, thank you for your amazing insight. You've given everybody some very powerful tools here that will change not only the way they, we communicate with patients, but how we communicate between team members, which is even more important because that spills over into patient care. So um, the book, and there is so much more here 
um, you, I know you can talk on this for hours. How you ever did a 20-minute TED Talk is, is <laughs> I, I don't know how you did that. Um, it's, harder to give, it's harder to give a short talk than it is a long one. For um, sure. So you've shared some great stuff. So the book is Rising Strong, um, available all over the planet, everywhere. Uh, New York Times bestseller. Highly recommend it if you have not read it get it today and devour it and then reread it. It is great stuff. And, uh, and then we will be getting back with everyone on the online learning, which I think would be great for the entire team to go through and experience and take their skill level to a, a higher level. So thank you for you sharing. I think it would be really this fun. Has been amazing. So thanks again for um, being part of the Crown Council. We we uh, feel like you're part of the family. Everyone knows you, and uh, you know because we've met you three years ago, and everyone tracks your progress and the great things. But thank you for taking the time to personally share with us uh, your journey that never ends of this great research and the tools that have developed as as a result of that. So thank you once again. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Y'all definitely feel like family, so I love it. Y'all have a thank great you. day. Thanks for the interview. Bye. You bet.